Well, I am excited and privileged and nervous and all the rest here this morning, and I am so thankful for the opportunity to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning and continue in our series in Acts. So if you have your Bibles this morning and you would turn to Acts chapter 4, we're going to continue our study in Acts chapter 4. And as a as a, a moment of recap, I don't want to go into an in-depth recap over the things we've studied in the book, book of Acts so far, uh, but for those who maybe are visiting with us or joining us online for the first time, or maybe you've been traveling for the last couple weeks and, uh, and haven't been able to be here with us, I do want to try to connect some of the dots of what we've been studying to what we will be studying today and in the coming weeks. So the book of Acts uh, has, is written by Luke, and it is the, the sequel to his first book in the New Testament called Luke. And the focus of Acts, as we've been studying, is on the resurrected Lord, the, uh, the uh, resurrected Jesus with his disciples uh, and sending his Holy Spirit so that his disciples would be his witnesses in all the earth uh, through the expansion of the gospel through the birth of the church. So the book of Acts is, is uh, an incredible book. There's so much going on here. And, and in chapter 1, when we started this back in January, uh, we, we saw that the resurrected Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days and uh, instructing them about the kingdom of God and, and, and comforting them, encouraging them. And before he ascended into heaven, Jesus made a promise to the disciples. He said, I am going to send to you a comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so in chapter 2, the disciples are left waiting for this Holy Spirit to come. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost, it, it comes on the disciples, the apostles, and the followers of Jesus at the time, and, and a great miracle happens. The Holy Spirit opens up the eyes of the apostles and the believers to understand the word of God, and Peter stands up in Jerusalem at this feast, and he begins to proclaim the gospel of the resurrected Lord, the gospel of Jesus who was crucified resurrected and exalted so that he could take the Old Testament scriptures, Peter, and show that this was the plan of God from the beginning of time. And it says at the end of his sermon, the the listeners in the crowd that day, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, they were cut to the heart, they were convicted by the word, and they said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. So the promise of Jesus from Acts chapter 1, actually going back to Luke's gospel, that he would send the Holy Spirit to come and to comfort and to uh, empower his followers to be witnesses for him, came to pass, came to light. And at the end of Acts 2, we have the birth of the church. And so for the last few weeks, we've been studying in Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, we're introduced to a story. 
And it's a story about a beggar who's been lame since birth. He's 40 years old, and every day he has people carry him to the temple, and he begs for money. And in this story, the apostles Peter and John are on the way about their normal everyday life, and they're on their way to the temple to worship the Lord. And this man reaches out to them, he calls out to them and asks for money, and Peter and John, through the Holy Spirit's empowerment and enablement and through the the power of the resurrected Jesus, they don't have any money to give him, but they give him something so much better. They offer him life. And they heal his body. And it's through this miracle that they perform that God, uh, God was displaying not only his own resurrected power, but his own resurrected glory, his gospel, his, his life that he was offering to all men. And, and it's, it's the, the signs and the wonders the apostles were given to display the, the, the truth of the gospel at this season of time in the church. And so we've been studying that. They take the opportunity in that moment to preach the gospel that comes along because a crowd gathers when they see this guy who's been uh, lame for 40 years and they preach the gospel, and, and we've studied that sermon the last two weeks. And so we find ourselves in Acts chapter 4 now, and, and it's continuing on in this particular story with the beggar. Because after they healed him, and, and after they preached the gospel to these crowds, what happens is the religious leaders of the day of Israel show up, and they begin to listen, they begin to get frustrated and annoyed, and they end up arresting Peter and John in the temple because they're teaching the truth. And Peter and John are then thrown into prison overnight. They're dragged before a legal court of religious leaders the next day, and they're, they're questioned to give an account of how they did this. And the apostles, once again, take the God-ordained opportunity to share the gospel clearly with people who need it. So why do I give that entire recap? One, I want us to see that that story in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1, all the way up to almost the, the end of chapter 4, is one continuous story. It's, it's one thing that is happening in a 24-hour period. In, in the reality and, and, and life of the church as we know it today, we, we break up passages simply so that we can truly dive in and study them deeply and, and draw uh, out of the word truth that we can apply into our lives. But this story is one continuous story. And so if we back out and look at the story as a whole, there's something that's being communicated here. And that's what I want us to see this morning because it applies to our text. Why did Luke give us this story? It's not that this story was chronologically the next thing that happened in the life of the church after it was born. It's not that this was the only miracle that happened. The scriptures tell us in Acts multiple times that the, the apostles were doing many signs and wonders. Acts 2.43, in 5.12, later in the book, 
many signs and wonders were regularly done through the apostles. So we don't have everything that happened in the life of the church. This story was uniquely given to us by Luke. And the question I want to answer is why? And I think that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he was led by the Spirit to record historical events for his audience, which was Theophilus, he was writing these books for a person so that they would be convinced of the truth. And through the Holy Spirit's preservation of the word for all of us who would read it, this story was divinely preserved for us because God wanted to highlight something for us. And it's this. There is a reality of gospel opposition that closely follows gospel advancement. What we're seeing in the text of Acts is God keeping his word, sending his spirit, his church being born with the mission to go out from Jerusalem to all the world to share the gospel And when that reality is taking place, when gospel advancement is being pursued, when the Holy Spirit is using the word of God to change and transform hearts, the natural companion of gospel advancement is gospel opposition. And that's what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 4. As we look at Peter and John preaching the word of God to the people in the temple— They're opposed for preaching the gospel. They're thrown into prison. They're dragged into court. And so anytime there's gospel advancement, anytime the truth is proclaimed, anytime the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through the word to transform a person's life, anytime God is growing his church, they're sure to follow gospel opposition. So if you're taking notes this morning, I have four points. If, you're, if you like clear outlines, uh, this, this message is for you. I, uh, I'm not, you can ask my students in, in student ministry. I'm not clear, usually this clear in my outlines, but uh, I, I figured I could try to do it for today, all right? So point number one, as we look at our text, is this, the reality of gospel opposition. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking, that's Peter and John, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So Peter and John were out and about, as, as we remember back to Acts chapter 3, verse 1, they were heading to the temple for worship. They were out and about their normal, everyday life. And as they were going, as they were living their lives in submission to following Jesus, and they were living normal, everyday lives like every one of us, a gospel opportunity came across their path. The opportunity to heal this lame man. And so they took it. 
And, and through the power of the Holy Spirit and the direction of the Holy Spirit, they healed him. And through that, they had opportunity again to share the gospel in clear terms in Acts chapter 3, verse 11 through uh, 26 with the crowd. So gospel opportunity showed up. Peter and John probably didn't wake up that morning thinking, hmm, what's on the agenda for today? Maybe I'll heal a lame man. That sounds good. And then I'll preach to a big old crowd. I'll get them all together. I'll preach the gospel so that I can get thrown into prison. Peter and John were living their lives, normal everyday lives, when an opportunity came across their way. And they were focused on Jesus. And they were willing to obey Jesus and follow him, whatever he brought across their way. And so when it started, it started with doing this amazing miracle that God empowered them. And they gave God the glory. Acts chapter 3, uh, verse uh, 12. They gave God the glory for that. They gave, God gave them another opportunity to proclaim the gospel un, in Solomon's portico. They followed in obedience, never expecting, ah, oh, I could get thrown in prison for this. And so they're at the temple proclaiming the truth, obeying the Holy Spirit as he's directing and leading them, and along comes gospel opposition. They didn't plan for it. They weren't seeking it out. But it came. Gospel opposition often follows gospel advancement. So, before we move on in our text, let me ask this question of ourselves for you and for me. Are we following the example of Peter and John and the apostles of living our lives looking for gospel opportunities? Because they're there everywhere we go. We rub shoulders with people every single day. We all know unbelievers, and if we don't, that's a problem. Because Jesus said the mission of the church, the mission of disciples, is that we would go to a lost and dying world and share the truth with them. So are we looking for opportunities to advance the gospel? Are we praying for them? When they come along, are we resisting them? How many times have I found myself in a situation where it's like, I know I should talk to them about the gospel. That was a perfect bridge. And I come up with every excuse in the book why I don't do that. And maybe you found yourself doing that. I don't have time for this. Uh, I got all these other things I got to do. I, I can't get stopped with that conversation. Ooh, that, it's kind of weird to approach them and just bring that up. What will they think of me? I know this person. I come here all the time. I have a relationship with them. I don't want it to be awkward. What if I don't know what to say? What if they ask me a question I can't answer? These are things we're going to see answered in this text. But are we following the example of the apostles? My second point here this morning is this. The reason for gospel opposition. 
Look back at the text in Acts chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed. So these church leaders, these the, not church leaders, these religious leaders of the day, of the Jews, were greatly annoyed with these people. Why? Because they were teaching the people. So they were annoyed that somebody else who wasn't of their, their stripe or of their particular uh, brand or of their level of education was teaching the people. They had drawn a crowd and they were greatly annoyed, even more so, at what they were teaching them. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. These religious leaders of the day, as they saw the miracle, as they saw the crowds, as they heard the message, it stirred in them an an attitude of opposition to the gospel. Why? Because the gospel message is an offensive message. The gospel message, at its core, is offensive to sinful people. They didn't want to hear the message. These were the people who crucified Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the King of the Jews. He claimed to be the sent one, the Messiah, for the people, and he didn't fit their picture. He didn't fit into their system. Because if he truly was the Messiah, as he said he was, he wasn't the conquering Messiah that he thought he would be to overthrow the Romans. He wasn't, uh, he didn't fit into their social norms of of social status, so they were going to lose their power, because in Jesus's message, in the kingdom of God, it's those who, who go low, who serve, that are great. It's those who love other people, not those who are the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential. The message of Jesus was offensive to these people, and it's why they crucified Jesus. And we know, as believers from the scripture, it falls within the plan of God. And so these men preaching this same message that Jesus rose from the dead and he offers full forgiveness to anyone was offensive to these leaders. The gospel message has always been an offensive message. Maybe you got saved later in life and maybe you, your story, part of it is that for so long you resisted the gospel message because you thought you didn't need Jesus. You were good enough on your own or Jesus really wasn't that great of a king. You didn't want to submit your life to him. That's why the message of the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because in the gospel, we have to get really honest about ourselves. Maybe you're here this morning and you've, you, we're using terms like the gospel and you've never heard that before. What I mean by the gospel is this. It's the good news that God sent Jesus to pay for our sins to make us right before God because we couldn't do it on our own. That message is offensive. 
People get offended and they think the gospel's foolish. It's just made up. It's, it's religion that, that people put their trust in to make themselves feel good about. It's offensive because it's a stumbling block to people's pride that they need a savior and that there is a God that they're accountable to and that they have to submit their life to if they want to be forgiven. This message was offensive in Acts chapter 4. It's what brought about gospel opposition. And the gospel message is the same message today. It hasn't changed since Acts chapter 4. So the gospel message is still offensive today. Your lost neighbor, your lost coworker, your lost child, is going to be offended by the gospel. And that looks differently for each person. We don't want to hear the truth. That we need a savior. Because of our sin, we're naturally blind to the truth of the gospel. We don't see our need for it. We don't want to submit to it. John tells us, he records the words of Jesus, and he says this, this is the judgment, this is the truth, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light. Jesus came, and he gave us the way, himself. And because of our sin, and our hardness of hearts, and our blindness, and the evil one blinding our hearts from the truth, The gospel message is offensive. So in Acts, the church here experienced gospel opposition because they were preaching the truth. It was the reason for gospel opposition. The third point is this. I want to note the response of the apostles to gospel opposition. Look at the text again in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set Peter and John in their midst, they inquired or questioned of them, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, And elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been healed? Then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, who has become the cornerstone. And there is no, or there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among which by men must be saved. So the next day, after they've been in prison, Peter and John are dragged before this court of law, this religious court. It's called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of different religious rulers, and they were there gathered to question Peter and John. And what they wanted to know was, 
Peter and John, how did you accomplish this miracle? There's, there's a little bit of loadedness in this question that we don't necessarily catch in our English versions. Because in that day, how Peter and John would have responded to that message would have been very, very serious. How they responded to that would have cost them life or death. Because in the Old Testament law, if a prophet or a, uh, someone got up and shared a vision or uh, a dream or a miracle and then got up and started teaching and they encouraged people to follow after the gods, uh, different gods other than Yahweh, the people of Israel were to stone them. So how Peter and John answered this question is really, really important. And so what does Peter do? He boldly proclaims the truth of the gospel. Think about this for a moment, okay? Peter wasn't planning to get imprisoned. Peter was human. Okay, this is the same Peter who a couple months earlier denied Jesus three times at his crucifixion. This wasn't a part of the life of the church. I think sometimes if you've grown up in church or if you've read the Bible for yourself for any amount of time, we see that this pattern of gospel opposition that follows gospel advancement becomes the norm for believers. It's all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But at this moment in time, this is the first thing recorded for the life of the church. It's the first moment of persecution. This had never happened before. And we aren't given many details about it. We don't know what Peter and John did in the cell throughout the night. We don't know what they were experiencing emotionally, physically. What we do know is this, that when Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin and questioned about the gospel, they boldly proclaimed the truth. They didn't back down. They didn't try to reason their way out of the situation they were in. They didn't try to take a step back and be like, ah, it's a miscommunication. They didn't apologize for what they said or did. They didn't deny Christ. They didn't cower in fear. They stood boldly before these men, knowing the weightiness of their answer and the results of what could happen to them personally based on what they answered, and they boldly proclaimed the gospel. Peter said, let it be known to all of you and to every person in Israel. I want this to be crystal clear. So there's no confusion. It's by the name of Jesus Christ. It is the person of Jesus Christ who you crucified, who God raised from the dead, that this man is standing here well. Jesus is the stone, the way of salvation that you rejected, and he's become the centerpiece. He is the way the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to the Father except by Jesus. Peter boldly proclaimed the gospel. 
Now, how, how does that impact our lives today? Because I don't think many of us or most of us have been standing in front of a council questioning for a miracle that we've done. And we've never even come close to that situation. But here's the reality that when we are put in gospel opportunities, most of the time, if you're anything like me, your initial reaction is to draw back and cower in fear because of what could happen. So how did Peter, in this situation where it could have cost him his life, how did he get up and preach boldly the truth of the gospel? Well, look again at the text. Look at verse 8, because it gives us a clue. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, went on to preach the gospel. Peter did not get up and preach the gospel in his own strength because he was some superior human being or super apostle. He, he put his pants on the same, we, same way we do, okay? Peter was just like us. And Peter was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was obedient to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwelt him and guided and directed his words so that in the moment when the time came that Peter needed help, it was Jesus working through Peter. It was Jesus dwelling in Peter who was quite literally with him in that moment. I love what one commentator said on this. He said, what the Sanhedrin did not perhaps understand was that the apostles were still companions of Jesus. Even though Jesus physically had ascended into heaven, was exalted in heaven, he was still companions with his apostles and with his disciples through the indwelling Holy Spirit. They were indwelt with the Holy Spirit and with Christ. Their their Lord was saturating their emotions, compelling their wills, energizing their bodies so that the Sanhedrin was not only seeing them, but seeing Peter and John, the Jewish leaders were seeing Jesus. That's, That's the reality for us. When we're spreading the gospel, when we're living life on mission, when we're seeking to be empowered by the Holy Spirit given to us from God, it's the same Holy Spirit. We are dwelling with Jesus. So in the moments when gospel opposition or gospel persecution or trials and temptations come, the same Holy Spirit that dwelt in the apostles is the same Holy Spirit dwelling in us today. Jesus was being true to his promise from Luke chapter 12 when he told the apostles, they will bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. So Jesus told the disciples this was going to happen. This wasn't a surprise, although it probably was to Peter and John in that moment. And he said, don't be anxious about how you're going to defend yourself or what you should say. 
for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In their moment, under the sovereign hand of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit, John and Peter responded to gospel opposition with grace, with boldness, and dependence on the Holy Spirit. So how should you and I respond when gospel opposition will come to us? Because it's going to come. Here in the West, we don't see what's happening in Acts chapter 4 pretty much at all. I mean, a a couple of years ago with Canada, there was a few things with with, uh, gospel ministry uh, and and whatnot. And and that very well, Pastor Andrew uh, was preaching all last year about that. That could be us soon. But for this season of time, we don't see that. But we do see gospel opposition. We see it at our jobs. For us, for many of us, it It's not so much opposition as it is us getting over awkwardness. Like, we need to take the first step and share the gospel. And we're so afraid of opposition coming that we haven't even taken the first step. So we haven't gotten to the opposition yet. Opposition is not a bad thing. It's promised by Jesus. That if we identify with him, if we follow him, if we truly hold his truth and we share it with his heart, we will be hated by the world, he said. It's not going to make sense. It's an offensive message. So how should we respond when that comes? With grace? with patience, with boldness, with truth, humble dependence on the Holy Spirit like Peter and John, with hope that the word of God is powerful enough to change hearts. That leads me to the last point this morning in the text, and it's this, the results of gospel opposition. I want to show you from the text this morning two different results from gospel opposition. There were two different groups of people in this story going all the way back to Acts chapter 3 verse 1 all the way through almost the end of Acts 4 which we're going to continue to study in the coming weeks. There's two, two groups of people we see here. There's the crowds who Paul and John, or Peter and John are preaching to in Solomon's portico. And then there's this religious group of leaders who they're preaching to under trial. And the first one was the, the crowds who were in Solomon's portico who heard the gospel message from Peter and John. And the, the thing I want to note about this is the futility or the pointlessness of gospel opposition. Because look at how people responded to the word of God, the preaching of the truth, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4. 
So this is after the apostles had been arrested. The religious leaders took them into custody, threw them into prison. They probably tried to scare the crowds away and said, don't associate with this man. Don't listen to their message. Verse 4, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So what happened to, to the gospel in the face of opposition? It advanced. It, it exploded. The church continued to grow. It was like the, like the uh, religious leaders of the day saw a fire and they meant to grab the sand to throw on it to snuff it out and they grabbed the gas can and they threw it on there and it just kept spreading. That's how the gospel works because God's power in his word is more powerful than any other power on earth. So when gospel opposition comes, as hard as it may be, as scary as it may be, we don't have to be afraid because ultimately it's not up to us to accomplish the work. It's not us who does the work. It's the message. We're the messengers. Peter and John preached a great message. But it wasn't their abilities that caused people to believe. It wasn't the circumstances. It wasn't the fear that the religious leaders tried to bring about. It wasn't the opposition. It was the Spirit of God using the Word of God to accomplish his purposes. And Jesus himself tells us it's the Spirit who blows. He moves as he will on the hearts of men. In his timing and in his way, our responsibility is to be faithful. So this should bring you and I great hope. Because In the face of gospel opposition, what can come naturally is fear, is questioning, is this really the right thing? Am I doing this right? Am I I doing enough? And ultimately, it's not about us. It's the word of God or the Spirit of God using the Word of God to transform and change a person's life. The second group I want to look at this morning is how the group of religious leaders responded when they heard the gospel. What was their response? Well, I don't want to dip into next week's message because that's not my territory, but I want to look at two verses because it, it gives us a clear answer. Verse 14 Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So when Peter and John clearly proclaimed the gospel and they saw the mighty sign and work that God had given them to do in that season of time to to display the power of the gospel and the truthfulness of the gospel, the religious leaders of the day were speechless. But just because they were speechless and they couldn't deny it, the scripture tells us, 
Verse 18 tells us how they responded to it. They called in Peter and John and they charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. They, they rejected it. They would not accept the truth even though there was clear signs. And here's, here's the point of why I bring that up. This is how the gospel is to a lot of people you're going to interact with. To them, the scripture says, the gospel is a message of death. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So all the people who we rub shoulders with are either going to be saved or they're going to perish. And to one, the fragrance that we give off is death. And to the other, it's life. Who is sufficient for these things? The gospel message is an offensive message. And to some people, it's a message of death. This became really, really clear to me last summer when I had the privilege to take a a team of students up to Detroit into Hamtramck, where we're going again this year. Hamtramck is a city inside of inner city Detroit that's primarily Muslim. It's an awesome city. It's very small, but it's very condensed. Everything's in Arabic. All the people there wear the traditional Muslim uh, 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 outfits. And when I went there last summer, I asked the missionary who's been there for, their church has been there for 10 years. I said, how many people have you all seen saved? This is an amazing ministry. And he looked at me and he said, zero. And my draw, my jaw almost dropped. And my first thought was, what are they doing wrong here? And to my shame, as I began to talk to Sam the missionary, as I began to live with him for a week, as I watched him and those at the church faithfully minister the gospel, because my thought was, well, maybe they're not sharing the gospel. As I watched him day after day interact with people on the street, speaking them to them in Arabic, sharing the gospel with them, and how they rejected it, the thing Sam said to me when I asked him, how many people have you gotten saved? And he said zero. And I said, how is that? The thing he said to me will never, I will never forget it. It was this. He said, in some ways, for this season of time, we, we view our ministry here as a ministry of death. And what he meant by that was not inappropriate, was not, uh, was not wrong, What he meant by that is we're faithfully proclaiming the gospel, giving out the seeds, and God has chosen not to illumine the hearts of these people yet. And so for those who hear the gospel and choose to reject it, to them it is a message of death. And so when you and I share the gospel We can't choose how a person responds to it. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to faithfully proclaim it, and to some, it will be a message of life. It will change and transform them. 
they will meet Jesus. In Jesus, they will find hope. They will find help. They will find forgiveness. They will find grace. But to some, it's a message of death because it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. They don't want to hear it. Gospel opposition will follow wherever gospel advancement is being pursued. My job and your job as individuals called by God is to be witnesses to the risen Christ everywhere we go. Our job as a church here in Simpsonville is to be witnesses to the risen Christ that Jesus truly is who he said he was, the Son of God sent for us, slain for us, risen for us so that we can be forgiven. Gospel opposition is going to come if we faithfully live out the gospel in our, in our everyday lives. And it's going to look different, but it's going to come. It's not a bad thing. It's not a thing we should fear. It's not something we pursue. It's a reality. And so we need to be aware of it. Christ promised it. May we remember to faithfully follow Jesus is to, is to, be, uh, to set ourselves on a path in which opposition and persecution will come. May we be reminded of the reason for gospel opposition. It's the message that's offending people. And we better do our job to not include ourselves in what offends people. And what I mean by that is we be careful how we share the gospel. We share it with truth. We share it with love. But it's the gospel message that we want people to reject. We don't want them to reject it, but you know what I mean. May we remember how to respond in the face of opposition when it comes with humility dependent on the Holy Spirit. And may we submit the results of faithful gospel advancement in our lives and in the lives of our church to our sovereign and loving God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your strength and your grace this morning as I had the privilege to open the word. Lord, I pray that as we go from here today as a church, as we leave here as individuals, that the word would not just be something that we hear, but something that we allow to work in us and flow out of us into what we do. Lord, there are people all over this city. There are people in our lives who need the gospel. And you've called us to be witnesses to 
the gospel. You've called us to be faithful, not to work out the results, but to be faithful. And so God, would you help us to do that? And would you be glorified in our work? In your name we pray.